you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be spending a little time there this morning in a couple of different chapters. You know, as I think about this Sunday and the unusual nature of everything going on, I just have one really simple message, and that is that I miss you, that I really do. And it's kind of funny to me, there's, uh, there's a lot of Christians that say that they can follow Jesus without having the church. And I got to say, a lot of them are thinking like, hey, we've been showing you, you don't need to go to a church building to have church. And part of that's true. But if I really think about what I missed the most this morning, it was a room filled of spirit-filled people celebrating one Lord. God designed us to be together, and when this is all said and done, I hope church buildings will be filled once again. Every preacher is fearful that we're all going to have to spend the rest of our lives doing live streaming, and we'll never see a live person again. Uh, the audience is all laughing here. Uh, I hope you're laughing at home, but really, truly... Uh, when I thought about what I wanted to share this morning, I thought I would just share that I miss you. And we miss a lot of things. I miss people that uh, I love very dearly in my life uh, who you don't get to see anymore. I miss uh, things that important, and then I also miss just simple things like uh, being able to uh, you know, walk through the grocery store without freaking out. But I really, I truly, I miss you. And as I think about the disciples and think about their life, they spent a lot of time missing Jesus. And in fact, a lot of times I feel like we all sort of miss Jesus. And I have said that in an ambiguous way for a reason, because I think we can miss Jesus in a lot of ways. I think I can miss Jesus's presence. Like I really want Jesus to be in my life, but there are times where I just sort of wander away and I forget that Jesus longs to be near to me. Sometimes I miss Jesus that way. Sometimes I miss Jesus and the understanding of his power and what he's up to and what he's doing. And sometimes I miss Jesus' purpose, and what he's trying to accomplish and what he's trying to do. Today I want to simply walk you through a few different passages where the disciples miss Jesus and I hope that at the end of it, we will never miss Jesus again. If you would take a moment and open to Mark chapter 8 in your Bibles. I assume you have to actually use your Bible now and not your device because your device is on Facebook. Uh, so it's a good thing we still have these. And so if you will join me in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. There is a few different passages that we need to look at, and we'll start in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples, they went on to the villages all around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do people say that I am? 
And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Who do people say that I am? Jesus asked that simple question, and people came up with a lot of answers. Most of them prophets, and thinking that he was a special hero of faith. Someone to look up to and admire, a teacher, a rabbi, one who was a prophet, and the one that you know, would correct their paths and help them know the way. These were highly complimentary, but they weren't necessarily the whole answer. People were missing Jesus. They were seeing a flurry of activity. They were seeing Jesus perform many miracles. They were seeing him do all sorts of crazy things, forgiving people, and they were missing the point. Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers correctly. He says, you are the Messiah. And not in our text, but in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, you got this right, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. I'm going to build my church on this, that Jesus, that I am the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. I'm the one who's coming to redeem. I'm the anointed one. And Peter, he gets the answer right. He doesn't miss who Jesus is in this moment. He doesn't miss him here. But it's just moments later where Peter misses the purpose of Christ. In verse 31 of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark, he then began to teach them, this is Jesus, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the mind, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, he hears, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter hears him and he says, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. I just told you you're the Messiah. I just told you I know that you're the one who's coming to save and redeem. You're the one who's going to vanquish our enemies. You're the one who's going to make everything right. And you're telling me that you're going to go and die. That you're not only going to die, you're going to suffer and you are going to be embarrassed and you're going to be rejected and people aren't going to accept you that's not how the messiah takes things over and jesus looks at peter and he says hey while you're rebuking me i have a rebuke for you you're not seeing things you're missing it you're missing who i really am and what the messiah must do and then he tells the disciples and he tells every person who would want to follow him just exactly what it means to look and follow. In verse 34, he says, then he called the crowd. He called the crowd to him and along with the disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel 
will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. I want to be very clear. Verse 38 is the reason why we have emails and text messages that say, if you don't pass this on, you're going to hell. Like, this, you have to do it. Um, I hope that sarcasm passes through the internet. That's not what he's saying. But we are called to worship and give ourselves to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. He is the one that we are following. And he says to us that we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross. That those who lose their lives will have it saved. Well, they've missed it and we miss it from time to time. And it kind of takes a couple more tries. And so let's look at the couple more tries as Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die and come back to life. In, in chapter 9, we have a monumental moment in the life of Jesus. It's the transfiguration. Jesus is dazzling in white, and it is obvious that Jesus is truly the Son of God. There is a pronouncement, this is my son who I love. The disciples are getting excited. And Peter's vision of what the Messiah is to do is, it must be like doubled down here saying, okay, he is the Messiah. He's going to take out the enemies. He's going to take the throne. He's going to right the world. He's going to set things straight. So then when we pick up in chapter 9 and verse 30, let's see what happens. They left the place and passed through Galilee. This is verse 930. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching the disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Now, before we look at what they argue about, what does Jesus say is going to happen to the Son of Man? That he's going to suffer, he's going to die, that they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. I don't know if you ever thought about leading like a, a, a revolution or taking over the world. I think about it every once in a while. But the way you go about doing that is not dying. The way you accomplish that is rallying the troops, getting people united behind you, and you go about the fight. And Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. The guys, though, they're missing it. And they're thinking, okay, we just saw the transfiguration. Things are looking up. Jesus just was told that he's the son of God and that he's loved. This is going to be the energy inside of him that will set him on the right path to take over, take Israel back and make the world right again. And so the guys, they were arguing on the road and Jesus says, what are you guys arguing about? And they kept quiet though, verse 34, because on the way they had argued about who's the greatest. It's an easy thing to start arguing about. 
we like to argue about who's the greatest basketball player. I know the parts of the world I live in and that that's probably Michael Jordan. We like to argue about who's the greatest, but it doesn't matter anymore. All sports are done. Sports are never happening again. That's what I heard. So it doesn't matter anymore. I'm sorry, that was ridiculous. They were arguing about who the greatest was. We always want to know who the greatest is. Not just at sports. These disciples were sitting around a room and they were on a journey together and they were wondering, when all of this happens, who gets to be first? Who gets to be one of the powerful people? Who gets to start making decisions? Who gets to be the one that's making, making things right? Who can carry out their will? Who can get done the policies and the programs that they want to get in place? And Jesus sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said to them, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. It seems like Jesus wants his disciples to serve. And he took a little child whom he placed among them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children, my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. We like to picture Jesus grabbing a little kid and be like, oh, he's so sweet with a kid. And it's like, I, you know, I don't know if he just sort of wrangled him and said, all right, here, look at this kid. But the whole point is not that the child is innocent. It's not about his innocence or purity. Jesus grabbed the lowest person and social standing, and he says, if you guys want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to find my way in my kingdom, you have to be servants of all. And to enter into the kingdom, you gotta be like this child. You have to be finding yourself in the least place of importance. You guys are arguing about who the greatest is, and I want you guys to be laying down your lives and taking up your cross and take the lowest place. That's what it means to be great in my kingdom. And the disciples miss it again. And you think third time is the charm. If you jump over to chapter 10, we hop over a few things about children again and about the rich having a hard time entering into the kingdom. Everybody that should have, you know, you know be on your hot list for taking over the world and gathering the rich and the wealthy and saying, okay, we're going to need their power. We're going to need their influence and their resources. And Jesus is saying it's hard for them to enter the kingdom. And then he says in chapter 10, verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to him, chapter 10, verse 35, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Well, he says, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. What is Jesus' glory? He tells us just a couple of verses before that. In verse 32, it says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished 
while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. The disciples hear this and their follow-up question is, hey, when all of this stuff is over and you get your mind on straight and you realize that you're the Messiah, that you're the son of man and that you are going to go and make the world right, who gets to sit at your left and right when you, you are in your rightful place? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they're like very confident. Oh, we can, they answer. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When they had heard about this, they became indignant with G James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know why the disciples were surprised of the crucifixion. When it's recorded three times of at least three separate occasions, and I got to think Jesus covered it a few more times than that. But they missed it. They missed Jesus' purpose. They missed just how powerful he was and what he could do. And I look at their life and I wonder, do sometimes I think that I, I miss those same things? I miss Jesus. I miss him when I think that I can fix everything, fix things in my house. I can fix things for the church and make everything right and good, that I can fix things in my personal life, that I, that I have all of this control and all this power. I miss, I miss out on what Jesus is trying to accomplish when it becomes all about me and all about my control and all that I can do and all that I think I can accomplish for my name and for my position and make my life something that it isn't. I think we can all miss it. We can miss what Jesus is trying to tell us. That the greatest among us are servants. And I want you to take a moment right now and think about who's been classified an essential worker. The CEOs are hiding out in their houses. And the janitors are making sure our world is safe. 
Jesus a long time ago said that to be the greatest, you'd be a servant of all. I want you to think about the way the world has been for the last month. And I want to know who's the greatest been. The people who have had or the people who have given. The people who have insulated themselves or those who have risked their lives to care for others. The story of the gospel is the story of the one who has the greatest power but also the greatest humility. Who has the greatest strength and the gentlest of hands. The story of the gospel is about Jesus and his kingdom breaking into the world and telling the least in the world that they are first place in his home. And he asks everyone who will follow him to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow him. I've been waiting for one unifying voice to help our nation, to help the world. I've been waiting for just one person, and I, and I know that whoever might stand, the world would be divided over whether we should listen to him or her or not. I told Wendy I felt like maybe we would all listen to Tom Hanks, but I'm not sure that we would even do that. There is one person who we are called to rally upon, one person who sits on his throne today, because Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago, the tomb was opened. And he wasn't there, he was alive. And he would show himself to his disciples and many others. And when it was all said and done, he would return to his rightful place as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It was N.T. Wright who taught me something that's pretty important here. The disciples all thought the Messiah was going to fix their part of the world. And the Messiah was the one who was going to get rid of their enemies. Sometimes it was Babylon, sometimes it was Rome, and Israel would be restored. The Messiah was the one who was the anointed and chosen one who would return the throne and make it right. There was another, though. It was called the Suffering Servant. It's Isaiah 53, and this man who would be broken. This man who would be wounded. This man who would pour out his life. And until Jesus, there wasn't a single soul who thought that the Son of Man and the Suffering Servant were the same person. They missed it. And Jesus was showing them all along that to make the world right, I'm going to pour out my life for them all. That the Son of Man will suffer and he will die. But on the third day, he will rise again. 
Every Christian puts their hope in this truth, that the tomb is empty and Jesus reigns today. My encouragement to you today is to find yourself among the many disciples who lay down their lives, take up their cross, and follow the suffering servant, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you that your son is our redeemer and savior, that he did go to the cross and he was killed and he was buried and he is risen. And so God, we come to you this morning, this time together. And we ask, God, that you would comfort us and strengthen us and help us to follow you. Help us to know that your essential work was to seek and to save the lost and give yourself as a ransom to the world. And God, our great need for you is ever more prevalent in this moment to know that we need your help, your healing, and your love. And I ask, God, now that you would fill every home and every everyone who would watch this together with us, God, that your spirit would come now and comfort us all and give us this reassurance in this moment to know that Jesus is Lord and King and Savior, that we have one who has risen from the dead and that that power that was at work in them is alive and at work in us, that we don't need to fear, that we don't need uh, to worry about a world that is broken by sin because we know there is forgiveness of sin and there is new life in your son and so in all of this lord we praise you and we thank you and we love you lord and praise you in jesus name amen i want to read with you A simple reminder that has resonated in our hearts as Christians from the moment Paul wrote it down and gave it to Christians in Rome. He spends a lot of time in Romans explaining the law and explaining how we get to be a part of his family. And this pinnacle moment in his, his text to the Roman church, he offers this wonderful counsel, this incredible encouragement that we would never miss Jesus. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else 
and all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We might feel separated physically, but we aren't separated from his love. He is always present, and his power is greater than death, and his purpose is to seek and to save and to offer you life in his kingdom. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Will you embrace that love today? Mm -hmm.